Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. This is Stephen Moray, president of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership, and today we're delighted to have with us Tom Barkin, who is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Tom joined us here in Virginia about 18 months ago. He's off to a strong start, and he's working on some very interesting things that relate to a topic of great interest to us, which is uh, rural development, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. Tom, why don't we start by just giving us a little bit of your background on how you ended up leading the Fed here in Richmond? Yeah, well, I led McKinsey's offices in the Southeast for 10 years, and I spent 30 years as a consultant. Um, I was a very young person in my own mind, but I was one of the oldest people there. And uh, when I retired, uh, I got a call from the uh, Richmond Fed asking me to interview to be the president. I wasn't a complete stranger uh, to the Federal Reserve. I'd been on the board in Atlanta. I'd been the chair of that board in 13 and 14. Uh, And I'd really enjoyed uh, watching what the Federal Reserve did, especially during the last downturn. And when I got the call, I said, this seems like a great opportunity for me to continue to give back. I know there's a ton to learn. And uh, I'd been in Richmond a bunch and thought it was a fun town. And so Robin and I embarked on a new adventure. Can you talk a little bit about both uh, the geography that that the Fed's Fifth District covers, as well as kind of the the broad functions that it plays? There are 12 Federal Reserve banks. Our district starts in South Carolina and includes all the states up through Maryland, West Virginia, D.C. Virginia, obviously, is a very important part of our district. What you would read about in the Wall Street Journal is our role in monetary policy. Uh, But in addition to that, we uh, supervise the banks in our district. So Bank of America, BB&T, Capital One would all be banks that we oversee. We uh, organize and operate a great part of the payment system in the U.S. And so the ACH system, we operate check processing, we operate at wholesale payments. So we do that. And then we are very much engaged in and involved in our communities. So that's probably the part we'll talk about today. You've been on the job about 18 months. I'd be curious, you know, give us a sense of what you've learned about the Fed's Fifth District that you perhaps didn't know before, and also just your general observations of the region that you've gotten to know better in that period of time. So I'd spent a lot of time in the region, but I hadn't really thought about it as one would think about it as a central banker. Our mandate involves stable prices and maximum employment. And so one of the first things I tried to do was to understand what the employment situation looked like in our district. I'd say Washington, D.C. and Baltimore are pretty unique in our district. And then you've got seven or eight vibrant, thriving New South cities that have their issues. But on the whole, employment's very strong. Uh, Richmond would count that. I'd put Northern Virginia there, Charleston, uh, Greenville, uh, Charlotte, Raleigh. But the thing that really hit me when I got into the analysis is most of our district is small towns. And employment's not working the same way in the small towns as it works in the bigger cities. Employment to population is a number I look at. Um, Take prime age people, the number of the percent that are employed uh, in small towns versus bigger cities. And it's 10 or 12 points less in the smaller towns than in the bigger cities. And so that's the place I just decided uh, our, our bank ought to be focusing. You gave a talk uh, a few months ago in March at the Virginia Governor's Conference on Agricultural Trade. For context, we're very passionate about rural development here at VDP and in Virginia, and I've I've read quite a bit about it. And I have to say, your talk is one of the most thoughtful, comprehensive things that I've read on this topic. It was entitled Moving the Needle in Rural Communities. Um, Really outstanding piece of work. Be curious if you could just talk a little bit about how this came to be a passion for you and a focus in your work uh, at the Fed. 
we are very focused on uh, labor markets working for everybody. Four things that got us interested. One is education. Uh, it's absolutely the case wherever you go that higher education is associated with higher life outcomes, whether that be health or wealth or uh, resiliency in a downturn or employability. One metric might be percent with a bachelor's degree, 35% in the bigger cities, 22% in the smaller towns. So we look hard at education. And when we get into education, one of the things you find is it starts at the very beginning. It starts in pre-K. And again, very significant differences between the smaller towns and the bigger cities on completion of enrollment in pre-K. And so um, our Fed, the Minneapolis Fed as well, has done a lot of work on this. And so the notion of how do we think about helping people in the smaller towns get engaged at the beginning is that's one thing I'd put on the table. And there are states like West Virginia, like Georgia, that have gone to basically universal pre-K. Second topic is connecting people to jobs. The job market is as hot today as it's been in 50 years. And there are employers I talk to all over the district who are struggling to find workers. On the other hand, I just said there are a lot of people on the sidelines. How do we get those people on the sidelines connected to jobs? This is one of the great paradoxes, I think, of the current labor market right, it is in the true. United States. Well, and, and you know, I, uh, when I took economics in college, one of the assumptions economists make is that labor markets are perfectly mobile, that any person who wants a job can get a job and any employer who wants a worker can get one. And that's not that true. And in particular, you know, in these small towns, a lot of people don't have access to the jobs. Yeah, it's not just a skills gap. It's sort of a geographic inequality access issue as well. Yeah. Gap. So, but one of the things I'm really intrigued with is the role that community colleges are playing in connecting people to jobs. And of course, they're great examples. Fast forward in Virginia is a great example of a program where we're really investing in helping people who want to get jobs in what it takes to get certificates so that they can get access to those jobs. I will say one of the things I've run into there is it's hard to get funding for a lot of these things. Degree programs, for example, are funded by Pell Grants, but certificate programs aren't. Mm. And a certificate program is actually cheaper and has a higher job placement rate. And so why wouldn't we be trying to funnel both scholarship money and community college money toward those things? A third thing we're focused on is isolation. It's almost definitional. If you're in a smaller town, you're more isolated. By the way, that doesn't mean you don't have social networks. Actually, a lot of research shows people are more socially connected in smaller towns than in bigger cities. But if you're looking for role models, if, for example, you want to think about going to college or becoming an entrepreneur, your odds are a lot higher if you grew up with people who had gone to college or were entrepreneurs. And in particular, in a world where hospitals are closing, banks are closing, colleges are closing, um, you lose some of these great role models in some of these small towns. And then I wouldn't be being complete if I didn't talk about uh, health here at the end. Um, uh, there's a lot more people on disability in smaller towns. Some of that is economic. Some of, some of that is disability, but some of that is also economic. And the incentives are very clear. Once you're on disability, it's hard to get off. I'm hopeful a hot job market will move that. And then, of course, opioids, which are a tragedy uh, across our district, but particularly so in the smaller towns. One of our interviews for this issue was with uh, Beth Macy, mm -hmm. who wrote... Uh, Dope Sick. Yeah, and also yeah. Factory Man. She's spoken very articulately about that, and it's really an issue that obviously has kind of crushed many um, rural and small-town communities, not just in Virginia, but across the country. And there's a lot of work being done at the front end of that, you know, in terms of uh, prescription rates and everything else. But there's a embedded base of folks who are, are not well, sadly. 
And I am intrigued with some of the conversations we've had with people who are doing addiction to work programs, including, you know, folks who apply for a job, fail a drug test, and you immediately give them the opportunity to get into an addiction to work program. I think there's some interesting things happening there that I hope can get scaled and be even more successful. The more I look at this America's Rural Grid Challenge, clearly there's no silver bullet, but there are there's almost sort of a constellation of topic areas that have to be sort of tackled simultaneously. Have you seen any states or, or regions that you think are standing out here, or do you think sort of the, the leaders in rural development have sort of yet to emerge in the country? Well, when you find small-town markets that are really succeeding, there's always a story that means you're going to discount it. Right. You could say Charlottesville would be a small town market that's truly succeeding. But, you know, maybe it helps to have the University of Virginia there. So I I focus less on saying, oh, no, no, here's a winner because someone will explain it away. And I go and try to focus on the elements of those people I see winning. And so I'd say, you know, one element is they can articulate a story. And the story isn't necessarily marketing to companies or people to come there. It's actually marketing to themselves. If you're in a, a town that's making it happen and you talk to the people in the town, my little simple metric is they can describe why their kids would come back. And I actually walk out of most of these discussions more encouraged than discouraged. There are, of course, you know, difficult cities and markets, but I think there's a lot to sell in these small towns. Then, obviously, you've got to work together on it. The most destructive thing I see is these counties where you've got eight small towns and they're all competing with each other, as opposed to saying, wait a second, this is a county story. And so there's something about bringing it together. And of course, you've got to be inclusive in that of all the people in your community. The third piece is funding. And I think there is more funding available than people think. Mm -hmm. You will see in the ones that seem to be making the most progress, a really clever opportunistic set of access to funding. That could be Go Virginia funding in this state. It could be federal funding. But They're really being creative and thoughtful about bringing funds into the market. And then I don't want to, you know, be too much of a downer, but patience is a pretty important piece of it. This does take a long time, and transforming a community takes a generation. It's not done a day at a time. I think the Danville story is a great story, but there are great days and good days and not so good days. You've always got to keep pushing forward against what you're trying to do. Well, Danville, I think, is a great example uh, of a community where really had a group of leaders come together with a shared vision and several really significant constructive actions that they took to help position them for the future. And, you know, it's the whole story's not yet been fully written, but a lot of promising things that are underway there right now. In the 70s, you never would have thought Pittsburgh or Detroit would ever be hot, but they are. And so, you know, you got to remember that's 45 years ago. And so it does take a generation to take a place that, you know, might have had a great factory town where the major employer left to reconstruct what's the story of the town, the skill base of the town, the energy of the town. But I really do think it's doable and it's being done. You know, one of the things that we've embraced here at VDP in looking at each of our sort of rural regions and smaller metro areas is that we want to ensure that we're doing everything we can to help position them to grow at least a little bit. I think relatively unique in that Virginia is now looking at its success, not just as the state as a whole, but how are we doing in our sort of constituent regions across Virginia? And it's something that we're tracking and trying to be, you know, very deliberate about. And I really like what I understand of the Go Virginia model, where you really do try to think about it in regions. And so I think that's a superb way to go. How important do you think broadband is for rural communities? If you want to break down isolation, 
I think you have to start with infrastructure. And uh, infrastructure 50 years ago was highways. And there's a lot that the highway system did to bring this country together. I think infrastructure today is the Internet. And so, you know, to me, it's a fundamental. You've got to have access to it. And that's true for, you know, operating every day, uh, shopping, whatever. But how could one be an entrepreneur and build a business if you didn't have access to it? And so if you believe, as I believe, that we can't find a Toyota plant for every city, then you have to have small businesses starting up. I think broadband is critical there. If you want to grow the population of a community, it starts with the people who grow up there wanting to come back. I think it's awfully hard to imagine a millennial coming back to a city where they didn't have access to high-speed Internet. And so uh, I think the answer is yes, it's very important. And I would just make the point, there is a lot of money out there. There's lots of fights about who pays. Um, You can lay the pipe, but you've also got to make it at a price level that people can afford it. And as difficult as it is, we somehow did rural electrification in the 30s. And if we can do rural electrification, I don't see why we can't do rural broadband access. Oh, I I love hearing that. (laughs) We believe that, too. And we've been really um, grateful for the the work that uh, the governor has done and the General Assembly has done to really dramatically increase funding for rural broadband access, essentially trying to subsidize the private sector to come in in areas that it would either not be economic to serve, or at least it would be a long time before the private sector gets to that point. Virginia now, for the first time, is starting to think about getting to near ubiquitous broadband access over, let's say, seven to 10 years, which is a, you know, a pretty exciting prospect for us. Are there other things that you think Virginia or other states should be thinking about? Have you given any thought to that balance, and are there things that you think that perhaps states should be giving a little bit more attention to with respect to rural development. Building any small town requires inclusive local leadership, you know, period, the end. And not every place will have that. Um, By the way, it's hard to say the strategy is to grow absolutely every small town anywhere. Uh, I think of it as we were talking about earlier as regions, and you've got to grow regions. And and you need inclusive, integrated local leadership at a region level. We agree with that. But I do think there are things that are very important for states to think about. I talked about uh, Mm -hmm. pre-K and, you know, getting every kid in uh, in every region the chance to get off to the right start. And uh, as I said, there are states out there that have invested more in in pre-K, and I think that's a very useful place to start. I've actually been impressed with the public school system in many of the rural markets of Virginia. So if I compare Virginia to some other states, I think several of your rural markets are solving the problem of the public school system. But let's not forget that we really need that in all of the rural districts. It's an issue that's much broader, but I I wouldn't ignore that. I think Fast Forward is a very good program in Virginia, and I know it's funded at some level. I think expanding that is well worth thinking about. This is a community college-focused post-secondary credentials to help meet uh, high-demand labor market needs. It's had a lot of success in helping people to get to a better place quickly with better earnings. I think leveraging the network of colleges, universities, and community colleges in the dis- in the state to help promote entrepreneurship as well. They're very natural locuses. Many of them are located in smaller towns. And if at the many universities in this place there were entrepreneurial ecosystems that helped coach and build people, bring capital back, I think that's very interesting. I think anything that can get people who are not well, well again, and back in the workforce, I'm very supportive of that as well. Is there a role for federal monetary policy to support the needs of rural 
of rural America? Um, federal monetary policy is a relatively blunt instrument. You know, we move mm -hmm. rates up and we move rates down. <laughs> um, uh, it is true that when we uh, run an expansion, as long as the expansion that we're currently overseeing, it does help people on the fringes of the workforce get back in the workforce. And our chairman and many others have talked about the advantages that we see in that. We always have to be watchful on the other half for our mandate, uh, which is stable prices. But we do watch and we have been running a very hot economy for some time now under the theory that we are bringing more people back into the workforce. And of course, that would include small towns. Indeed. What ways do you think the Fed and state leaders can connect with these communities to help them grow their economies? Thinking about things like labor force participation. Clearly, there's a big gap. There are different reasons for that. But I, I don't know if, if anyone has really cracked the code on what it would take to sort of close those labor force participation rate differences between you know rural areas and more urban areas or metros. One of the pieces of research I'm doing right now, and I caution you and everybody else that it's just research and process, is who are the people on the sidelines? I think there's probably tailored answers for different segments. I think it's well worth looking at uh, what I'll call the economic incentive, people to go back to work. In that segment, you clearly have some who are unhealthy, as I've described, whether that be diabetes or disability or uh, opioids or whatever. And I think working hard on health and treatment of those and getting those back in the workforce, that's another segment that's worth thinking about. I think there's a conversation that's a national conversation about uh, people who have been formerly incarcerated and the barriers that may play in there. And there's some interesting work being done on things like expungement programs that help make it easier for people to employ people who want to get their lives back together. And I don't have this fully laid out, but part of what I'm thinking in this, who are the non-employed, is what are some tailored efforts that could be done after those segments? One of the more interesting things I read in your talk back in March was about the impact that trade policy has on uh, many rural communities. Many of the small towns in, in my district uh, are heavily involved in trade in ways you wouldn't have just sort of woken up in the morning and thought. You've got manufacturers who are engaged in export, and you've got farmers who are engaged in export. And of course, when the place I always start is not the policies, do you have a tariff or not have a tariff? I start with the uncertainty, because it's actually pretty hard for business people to figure out where to go if you don't know how much do you plant next year if you don't know what the pricing's likely right. to be. Right. And so my hope is that as we work our way through these negotiations, we will land in a trade regime that is stable so that people can make investments and grow. But there's also no question that if you are on the wrong side of one of the tariffs that either we impose or one of our trade partners imposes, that can be pretty painful. It's created a very dynamic market for folks who are involved in exports. We actually have in Virginia one of the largest and one of the best state-level trade development teams in the country. It's part of VDP, actually. And we're seeing a lot of folks having to kind of rethink their export strategy based on what's happened with, you know, with tariffs. Some folks just essentially eating it, if you will. Others looking at reorienting both imports and exports based on what's going on. I'm a believer in ingenuity of our business people. I just think it's really hard to be clever if you don't know what the rules are. Again, I just hope that we can land the rules of trade and whatever the right answer is for the health of our economy. And once we do that, I think we'll resort supply chains in a, in a productive way. One of our big goals in Virginia that I think will really help our smaller regions and rural communities is to increase exports in the Commonwealth. We're one of the bigger states from an export perspective, but mostly just because we're one of the bigger states in general. But also a great port. Yeah, we have one of the most advanced ports in the world with you know natural deep water 
access, you know, no bridge restrictions. And the Commonwealth is in, uh, wrapping up a billion dollars of investment in that port to give it about 40% more container cargo capacity. Currently, Virginia exports per capita is only about 39th in the country. Part of that is because we have a, an economy that's pretty heavily based in the federal government. So we sort of have a smaller private sector economy than many other states. But it is one of the things that we're looking to really improve on over the next decade. We're going to be releasing a, our first sort of comprehensive international trade plan in the next few months. The governor's going to announce that. And one of our goals is going to be to materially improve our position in exports per capita, to become a more export-intensive state. That's going to involve both supporting more small and medium-sized firms getting into trade that are not currently trading, uh, providing services to help firms that are engaged in trade to expand their trade activity, and then also attracting significant export-oriented projects. You know, a recent example of that being the, you know, the Micron expansion in Manassas. It's going to add about a billion and a half exports per year. You know, three or four percent increase in our statewide. You know, export total. So that's going to be a big effort for us. The ag piece of that is very important, uh, obviously, to the smaller communities, as is many of the manufacturing opportunities. So I just thought I'd mention that while we were on the topic. That's great. I have to say, I think, as a guy who's just moved to Virginia in the recent, in the last year, this is a very attractive place. It's a very attractive place to live. I would think it'd be a very attractive place for businesses to locate. And, you know, what I see you and the government of Virginia doing is, you know, pretty clever in terms of what it takes to build an economy. So I think you've got a great product to offer. We do. And, you know, what we've noticed about Virginia is there were so many built-in advantages based on where we're located, you know, the proximity to D.C., the natural deep water port, proximity to all these other assets, in part because of that, this great educational attainment and all these other things. But sometimes we've not been as competitive with some of the other southern states that had to work a little bit harder, like North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. We've identified some of these things that have held us back a little bit, particularly in the smaller metro areas, things like being able to offer world-class, customized workforce solutions. You're familiar with Georgia Quick Start. Very much so. We're now launching something comparable to that here in the Commonwealth. We're looking at preparing more sites for advanced manufacturing opportunities. Virginia is very competitive, typically logistics-wise, workforce, education, and taxes, and so forth. But we often lose simply because we don't have prepared infrastructure and sites for those facilities to go. I get to travel my district, and I think you're right. You know, South Carolina is also a very attractive place. North Carolina is also a very attractive place. And those folks in Maryland, you know, they're, they're working very hard. So it is a competitive uh, market out there. And I think Georgia, where I used to live, took great pride every year in being the best state for business. And they did it. They spent a lot of money doing that. But when you look at the Carolinas, you know, I think one of the things that in some ways advantaged them versus Virginia over the last few decades is that they did not have a big D.C. metro MSA in their state. So they're a little bit more oriented towards com being competitive in smaller metros, whereas Virginia often relied on that one big driver of the economy. And one of the things that there's now really statewide passion around is sure that the whole state is growing. As an example, uh, 10 years ago, the last time Virginia was ranking, you know, number one in Forbes, number one in CNBC, there were years where Northern Virginia represented more than 100% of all the growth of the Commonwealth. That is to say that the rest of the Commonwealth on average is actually losing jobs at the same time that Northern Virginia is growing. We want to create more of a balanced you know, opportunity going forward. As I get out into the markets, and you know I am out there quite a lot, I, I do see the evidence that the state is working in each of these geographies, and I think that's very healthy. We're making progress. we got a lot more work to do. Obviously, talent 
availability, quality, pipelines, I mean, is the single biggest factor probably in economic success. What do you think that those smaller communities can do to really build kind of workforce that would attract high quality employers or even help the ones that are there now to grow? As I said, I've been impressed as I've been out. I was in Southwest Virginia a few weeks ago. The education system there is strong and the performance against the various metrics that you look at is very strong. The biggest challenge that I think to build a workforce in that market, for example, is getting people to stay or to move there or to come back. You've got to have the education system in a decent shape because no one will move to a place where you don't have confidence that your kids will get raised with a decent education system. They've got that. What you then, I think, need is a story on why people should stay or come. And importantly, in today's society, that story includes you and your working spouse, jobs for both. That includes education. That includes amenities. Often that includes proximity to say an airport or to other lifestyle things that people want to do, hospital. That's part of why I got so focused on thinking regionally rather than locally, because it's very hard to find a small town that would have a 10 out of 10 on those sets of things. But actually it's quite doable to find a region that would have it. You can find a beautiful place to live and there's a local hospital and there's a university to the extent you want to, and you can find the good school system and the airport's only 30 minutes away which might seem like a lot from a small town, but as I said, I was in Atlanta for 30 years. 30 minutes was halfway to the airport. So I think there's a real uh, opportunity there if we sort of broaden the horizon to be able to put together a story that not only, you know, people can get educated there, but that educated or talented people would want to come back and or to move there. Is there anything that you wanted to share either about rural development or about your work at the Richmond uh, that we didn't cover? I just say our our emphasis very much is on maximum employment. When we see an opportunity like the one we see in small towns, uh, we've got a great research team that's out there working. We've got a great outreach and community development team that's trying to engage. And we're very committed to continuing to stay engaged with these issues in our towns and our district. And we really appreciate those people who've opened their doors to us so far and those who will in the future. You've been a great addition to the Richmond Fed, to our community here in Richmond and the Commonwealth of Virginia. But we especially appreciate the focus and the energy that you've placed on rural development. And we look forward to continuing to work with you on that. We do too. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.